Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Valerie Hansen, author of the book The Year 1000, When Explorers Connected the World and Globalization Began. Valerie, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, it's great to be here, Mark. Well, it's great to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I am... Um, I'm 61. I began... I was, I was interested, I've been in history, interested in history for a long time, goes back to when I was in high school, and I started taking Chinese as a freshman in college, and was so terrible, I got kicked out of the class. <laughs> I couldn't hear the tones. It took years before I could hear the tones, and uh, anyway, I got kicked out of the class, and the teacher, as she was urging me to drop before the drop date, it was the day before, said to me, I don't, it was, this is the beginning, this is the first scene of the movie of my life. Uh, I don't know if you can live your life without studying Chinese, but drop this class now. <laughs> and uh, the, that that somehow solidified my resolve that uh, this was something I had to do. And so uh, I went back into, this is a classic freshman year story. I went back into another section and did fine. Um, and well, I, I was, after that semester ended, I had, it was the next semester. I worked with a tutor and then I went back. And uh, so I've been studying Chinese history for a long time. This project, I was going to say another key thing about me is that I have three kids who are now all done with college. And one of the things I did um, when I was trying to put them through school, my husband and I were trying to put them through school, was write a world history textbook. And so I've been writing on two tracks for a long time, one on Chinese history and then one on world history. And when I finished, I've completed a Silk Road book about about eight years ago. And when I finished it, I noticed that there were three events that all occurred around the year 1000. One, I knew from my world history writing and from my colleague at Yale, Anders Winroth, that the Vikings landed in on the island of Newfoundland in, in northeastern Canada. And then the other two were things in China that the um, an, an Islamic kingdom called the Karakhanids expanded. Uh, they expanded uh, eastward into West China and into the modern oasis of Khotan. And then there's a war that the Song dynasty, the main dynasty in China at the time, has with a northern power called the Liao. And those three things all happened around the year 1000, and I found myself wondering if they were connected in any way. And um, this book is really the product of that, that, that yes, they were connected, because one of the things that's happening Maybe the main thing that's happening in the world in the year 1000 is that different regions are coming into contact with each other. And, and that actually gets to uh, your uh, main argument, which I, I think is very fascinating because we, we talk about globalization nowadays. And, and a lot of people think of globalization as a modern phenomenon that could be that could be possible only through modern forces like, you know, telecommunications and you know, airplanes and so forth. And yet you're making a case to that we need to think about globalization as happening 
uh, much earlier. Globalization, the truest sense of a truly uh, interconnected world. Uh, how do you see this happening and how do these events play into that process? Well, I mean, yes, I understand there's a definition of globalization that is a very current definition. I mean, with, uh, you know, with pandemics, uh, that uh, with Ikea, that you can go into a store and buy anything you want from anywhere in the world, or you could get on a plane and go any place you want to go in the world. But I think at a, a more fundamental level, globalization is about when people in one place are affected by people in another country and that they have no control over what happens to them. And that process is what starts in the year 1000. Hmm. Uh, could you perhaps elaborate a bit uh, about what's going on in the year 1000 where this globalization is happening? Like what are some of the trends that are taking place that are making this possible in a way that it wasn't in say 1000 BC or BCE or, or, or 500 CE or some other period prior to this point? Yes, I, I, I was going to say we should clarify that we're talking about um, AD 1000 or 1000 CE uh, and not um, 1000 BC or 1000 BCE. The, uh, I think the, well, one of the things that's happening is that the world's population reaches around 250 million people. And the, that's because there have been agricultural revolutions or huge increases in agricultural production in Western Europe. Uh, it's one historian calls Western Europe serial, the whole trend of serialization. Uh, there's uh, growth in the Islamic world and agri uh, agricultural output increases in the Islamic world. That's also true in China. Um, in China, it's uh, not so much. Uh, I mean, it's 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 not serialization. It's riceification. The Chinese start planting uh, rice much more, much more rice than they had previously, partially because they've moved into southern China. It's probably also happening in the Americas. We know less about it, but there's evidence of agricultural increases in the Maya territory as well. And so all of that agricultural uh, surplus leads to population growth, and it also frees some people up so that they don't have to work the land. And that, I think, is the fundamental precondition for people being able to go away from home, to voyage away from home, because not everybody is working the, um, the land. You also describe this moment, which is the, a moment that is we didn't even really recognize existed until re relatively recently. And it, as you explained, it really is a, a historic moment that we still tend to overlook, which is the point at which, as you've already referred, the Vikings come into contact with Newfoundland. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon what is so important about that event in terms of this argument you're making about globalization and what was going on with the Vikings and, and, and with that settlement that they had established in the new world. Well, it's the Viking. Oh, and I was going to say one, one thing that's very important to say is that it's, I've talked about population increase. It's possible that, Climatic factors were also important. This is the beginning of the global warming period in Western Europe. But my reading of the research in climate science is that right now we know that Europe is getting warmer, maybe by a degree or two between 1000 and 1400. But uh, we don't know really about other parts of the world. So that's something that I think we'll, we'll learn more about um, in the future. The Vikings uh, le are 
um, begin to move out of away from Scandinavia, so Norway and Sweden and Denmark, and they um, sail to Iceland first in the end of the 800s, and then from Iceland uh, they move to Greenland, and then from Greenland just around the year 1000, as far as we can tell, as best as we can determine, they land in Newfoundland, and that's the beginning. That's why I start, I start my book with that because it's a clear, very clear example of two regions being linked. So the North America and uh, Northern Europe that haven't been linked before. And it is something that I, there's a fabulous museum at the Canadian site of Lansaw Meadows, which is on the tip of New, the Northern tip of Newfoundland. And when I went there with, um, with my family, we, uh, it was just fun going around the museum and all the Canadians are like, Oh yeah, we know this. We've studied this in, in high school. And all the Americans are like, this is so cool. Who knew? Who knew that the Vikings <laughs> arrived um, at Lansaw Meadows uh, before, you know, right around the year 1000. Uh, in, in terms of globalization, it wasn't, it wasn't the most solid connection, the connection between Northern Europe and North America. The Vikings are there for about 10 years and they have a settlement there. That's, we know that from the archaeology and, uh, they're there for about 10 years and then um, they decide to go home. And if the one of the main sources that we have about the Vikings in North America are the Icelandic sagas and people debate even now very vociferously their veracity. But the, Ice, the Icelandic sagas tell us that the Vikings leave because the indigenous peoples who they call the Skraelings or the wretched ones, um, the Skraelings uh, basically are hostile to them and uh, there are some battles between them and they, they outnumber the, the Vikings. And so the Vikings decide to leave, but even so maybe about the year 1010, the Vikings leave, but even when they, after they leave, they still go back to uh, North, Northeastern Canada to get lumber. There's, there's no trees on Greenland and Iceland had trees when the first uh, settlers arrived at the end of the 800s, but they cut all those trees down and they didn't grow back. So there was a chronic shortage of lumber on, in Iceland and Greenland. And that meant that the Norse were going back and um, picking up lumber. And we also know from archaeological, very skilled archaeological evidence, uh, or was work done by very skilled archaeologists in Greenland, that they picked up certain furs that um, existed only in America and don't exist in Greenland. So the connection between the regions, it, it never became, it wasn't a major trade route. It's not like the trade route between China and Southeast Asia, uh, but, uh, or the, even the trade route linking the Viking lands with the Middle East. But it still uh, was, it stayed open as a pathway. And that kind of, that opening of the pathways is something we see all around the world in the year 1000. And as you explained, it, it's a pathway that potentially could have extended even further than we currently recognize. You, you mentioned how we've seen uh, we we, the, we have solid evidence of the Viking of the Viking influence reaching as far south as present day Maine. But then, when you uh, shift your focus to uh, the Maya, you have this very interesting e engagement with the argument that there might have been a, a, a Viking contact that far south of uh, 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 the Western Hemisphere. Right. It, it's, I was going to say the, uh, the, the book has started to get some reviews in, uh, in, in Britain and uh, 
one of the reviews, I read a review yesterday by Boyd Tonkin, and, and he, he if, can you raise your eyebrows when you write? Uh, anyway, he, he kind of raises his eyebrows and says that it's a, unusual to see a Yale historian um, engaging in alt history, and, <laughs> and, um, and which I, I, you know, I take it as a compliment, but I, I was going to say that the, because I, I, who wants to act like a Yale professor all the time, right? But the, um, the, the evidence for Lansall Meadows being a Norse site, there's a, there's, there's no question about it. It's, it's, it's incontrovertible that the Norse were there at Lansall Meadows, but there's not actually that much evidence of the Norse. There's, uh, there's some evidence that they worked iron. There's a needle sharpener. There are some weights that they used when they were spinning. And then the, really the decisive artifact that persuaded everybody that the Norse had, had and it was the Norse who had built these seven sod structures made out of sod, out of grass with roots in the soil, um, that it was the Norse and not um, Amerindians, is, is a single bronze pin. Now, we don't have anything like that from the site of Chichen Itza, which was one of a major Maya city, the biggest Maya city um, in the year 1000. And it's on the, um, it's about, it's on the Yucatan Peninsula, the north, close to the northern, north coast um, of the Yucatan Peninsula. But what we do have from there are some murals. There are, um, they are, it's sad that the, it's so hot in the Yucatan that it's um, not a good, uh, not a friendly environment for the preservation of any organic material. But we have some murals that were found in the 20s and 30s, and then watercolors were done of these murals. So unfortunately, strictly speaking, it's not a primary source. It's a secondary source. But we have these very careful copies were done, and they show some blonde-haired captives that are being thrown in the water with their arms bound behind them. And those paintings, and then there's also a painting of a boat that has planks that um, looks a little bit like a Viking boat. Uh, the, it has a high prow. The, the prow and, um, comes out of the water. And uh, those paintings, I think, are all very suggestive of the Vikings possibly having arrived at the Yucatan. They would have, if they had arrived there, I'm, I don't think they were, they intended to go there. I think they were probably blown off course. But we know of other peoples, uh, we know of some African ship actually being blown off course um, across the Atlantic and landing in the Yucatan. And so um, I think I was teaching in the fall and uh, talking to the students a lot about plausibility versus, you know, when is something plausible? When does a historian think something is plausible? And when do they think it's possible? And then when are they absolutely certain? And for the Lansall Meadows site, we are absolutely certain that the Norse were there. But for the Maya in, in sorry, for the Vikings in, in the um, Yucatan, in the Maya territory, I think it's plausible. And the timing is perfect because the uh, temple where these paintings are from, the Temple of the Warriors, uh, was built just around the year 1000. And that's and we also have from the Icelandic sagas, we have evidence, we have mention of boats being blown off course. Every time the an exp, a Norse expedition goes somewhere, um, there's a one expedition that Eric the Red leads, and it has 25 boats, and 14 arrive, and 11 are blown off course. So there's a lot of shipwrecks taking place. So to me, it's entirely plausible that the Vikings arrived in the land of the Maya. That's one of the things you, as an aside, that's one of the things you do in the book that I, I really did enjoy, which was you, you talk about how we're 
basically reconstructing how these things were possible. You, you talk, you know, you briefly mentioned Thor Heyerdahl. You mentioned also in a bit more detail uh, the 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 uh, you know ways in which we now understand that say the Polynesians uh, undertook navigation that make these things, as you put it, plausible, if not necessarily you know definitive or certain. Well, the Polynesians are a very interesting example because in. I mean, there are parts of the world where we have a very detailed historic record, right? And, and of course, that includes Europe, which most of us, whether we've studied in America or Europe, have been exposed to a massive dose of European history. Uh, but there, and China's like that too. Everything's very, very heavily documented. The other places in the world where there isn't, there aren't indigenous writing systems, or they're only in existence for some of the time. Um, I think historians have to use more ingenuity and the Polynesians, we, we have archaeological evidence of when different places on the Pacific Triangle, so north to Hawaii, uh, east to Easter Island, west to New Zealand, we know when those places were settled. Then the question is, how did, how did the Polynesians, move, or the speakers of these Malayo-Polynesian languages, how did they move around the Pacific? How did they find their way around the Pacific? It's absolutely a huge expanse. And there, I think we have to look at more recent information about navigation. And one of the books that I recommend to everybody um, by, is by Steve Thomas called The Last Navigator. And it's about a Micronesian navigator named Mal Pialog. And he's, Americans may, Americans, you have to be fairly old to remember this, but um, in 1976, he, he navigated a boat from Polynesia um, up from Tahiti up to Hawaii, and he had never been on the journey before. And he did it by using uh, the uh, these various forms of uh, navigation that the Polynesians used. So a key one was using the stars, and they mapped their location. They memorized the location of the stars in the skies in different places, and then they could um, progress following the stars from one point to another. But Mal Pialog is teaching his system to Steve Thomas, Steve Thomas, who later on went to uh, host um, this old house. And uh, he, the system is you're looking at the stars, but you're looking at the waves. You're looking at fish. You're looking at plants. If you see birds flying in the sky, you know you're near land because birds go back and forth to the land. And uh, one of the reasons that we think that it's deliberate colonization and not just being blown off course is that. The boats were carrying men and women. They're probably traveling in double canoes, although there's debate about that. Um, so two canoes uh, connected with a wooden platform between them that could carry things like uh, crops and seeds, baskets filled with crops and seeds. And, um, then, and then a sail was attached. So that's a combination of that's a case where we use what we know about this navigation, this traditional navigation system that was passed down um, from one navigator to another. And then we combine it with the archaeology to come up with a theory about the settlement of the Pacific. And that, that contact that you, you talk about going back to, the, to, you know, the Yucatan Peninsula is, is also, you know, uh, reinforce its argument because, as you explain, the Mesoamericans themselves were uh, fairly, uh, you know, interconnected in, in, in ways that uh, we don't often appreciate. You, you mentioned, for example, the construction of the roads. You, you mentioned the, the the relationship between the various civilizations. I mean, you're not talking about 
isolated tribes who have no knowledge of each other. You're talking about these, you know, systems in, in place that, that interact and trade. Absolutely. And the, um, there's a site in, uh, this, well, it's just outside of East St. Louis. And, uh, I had a, my first summer job, my first paid summer job was at Cahokia Mounds. And, um, that site, uh, it takes off around 1050. So it's 50 years off, but it's at the center of a trading network. Um, there are goods coming from the great lakes down to St. Louis, modern day East St. Louis, um, from the Pacific coast, uh, and, um, from Florida. And you can see these excavated, there's shells. Um, there's some copper comes from the great lakes and, uh, you can see these goods, and we we this is a, again where archaeology can help us so much in tracing these pathways. Uh, we we know that um, the uh, Navajo had um, turquoise, and they were shipping it to Chichen Itza, the place with the murals, possibly of the Vikings. And then the Maya, their great export was one of their exports was chocolate. They had cacao beans and those were very precious. And they um, exported the beans and probably also the uh, the knowledge of how to make chocolate drinks to um, the Chaco Canyon in modern New Mexico. Uh, the Maya also exported a lot of macaw birds that were treasured because they had bright red and great bright green feathers. And there's some of those blankets survived because the uh, preservation conditions, the conditions for preservation in New Mexico are excellent. So there are some feathered blankets, beautiful, beautifully colored feathered blankets that survive. Uh, but we also have things like cages from the macaws. So we know that they were shipped live um, to uh, Chaco Canyon and then probably kept inside so that the poor birds were, um, you know, they were used to harvest feathers, and they probably had pretty miserable lives in in those cages. Now, you've been talking a lot in terms of trade of uh, crops, uh, trade of metals, even trade of animals, but you also focus upon a huge portion of global trade during this period, which is the trade in humans. I was wondering That's if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon what you're of on the role of the slave trade in this, and how the slave trade in this period reflects a lot of these uh, globalizing trends that you're talking about in your book. The, I was going to say, there's, I mean, it's probably fair to assume that there's slavery everywhere in the world. Um, but in terms of where we know for, but it's very hard to demonstrate slavery archeologically. So where we know about it because we have written sources about it is um, Afro-Eurasia. And the, uh, we know that slaves are being, so the biggest slave markets are in Constantinople. So that's the capital of the Byzantine Empire, the mo- modern Istanbul, uh, Baghdad. Um, that and so and then other major cities, Cairo, uh, major cities in the Islamic world. And one of our we don't. I mean, there's I talk in the book about um, the numbers that people come up with, the estimates, and um, their has been a lot of historical ingenuity in trying to figure out how many slaves were traded. And the, one of the figures that I cite is from uh, Ralph Austin and that the um, number of slaves going, being traded to the Islamic world coming um, from, there, there are three sources really of where people, where slaves come from. So they come from Africa and they come from Scandinavia and Eastern Europe and they come from Central Asia. So the Islamic world is sourcing slaves from 
three directions. So it's, you know, the slaves are not all just coming from one part of the world. They're coming from these three parts. And one of the most sources I thought most interesting is a, there's a doctor, a Christian doctor in Baghdad who writes about, it's a, it's a manual for slave buyers, giving them advice about what kinds of slaves to buy and who, which slaves are most healthy and which ones are most likely to be able to have children. And of course, it's, heart-stopping to read this about human beings being described in this very callous and very stereotyped way. But it's also fascinating because he knows so much about um, the different kinds of slaves that are in Baghdad. And uh, he describes, for example, the practice of uh, female genital mutilation and uh, warns slave buyers that they should examine the slaves, the female slaves, to make sure that they haven't undergone FGM, because then, of course, they will they will not be um, as good you know as as good slaves as if they had been um, left intact. And so uh, the and that movement of slaves um, is, as I said, it's very hard to demonstrate the movement of slaves archaeologically. But we know one of the things that people have known for a long time is that there's a lot of coins, silver coins, dirham, that have Arabic on them that have been found in Scandinavia and Eastern Europe, huge quantities of these coin hoards. And it seems most likely that you have the, so the, we had the Vikings going to North America and deciding not to stay there, but they move it also around the year 1000, they move into Eastern Europe and they do stay there and they blend with the local people who are called the Rus. That's where the word Russia comes from. And there's a huge slave trade of the um, Rus selling slaves, uh, some of whom may have been their countrymen to in the Islamic um, to the Islamic world and then um, receiving these silver coins in return and then for whatever reason, burying the coins in the ground, presumably hoping that they would get back to them and not being able to. And then those coins have been found by archaeologists. That Baghdad doctor was, uh, his book was especially interesting to me because it really, it was a a great uh, example of this globalization process because you're not talking about someone who traveled to say, uh, you know, Rus or, or to Scandinavia or to uh, sub-Saharan Africa to see these people, he was able to do it, you know, basically from his, in his own community because all those people you had seen representative uh, Scandinavians show up, representative Africans showing up, representative Central Asians showing up. So he's able to do this because you have this very multicultural, polyglot environment because of this process of, of global interaction. Absolutely, I mean, he is very interesting, Ibn Butlan. Is his name? It just it's a it's a, a a fascinating book. As I say, a heartrending too, but um, but very interesting. And one of the things that um, he doesn't talk about, but there's um, another source that I talk about in that same chapter uh, talks about the slate the, uh, the it's it's the story of a, a king, an African king who's kidnapped by um, a bunch of uh, traders from Oman and they uh, take him to Oman. They sell him at a slave market uh, because he's so handsome and tall. They figure they can get a good price for him. And then um, the part the story, the part of the story that I think is unlikely that many people were able to do this, but it's fascinating to read about how he did it. 
uh, is he manages, he, go, he has different owners in the Islamic world. Uh, he learns Arabic. He goes on the Hajj. He becomes, he becomes a Muslim. He goes on the Hajj. And then he makes his way back to his kingdom where most implausibly they haven't replaced him. So they welcome him back and he um, is on the throne. And then the traitors who had kidnapped him come back for another slaving trip and they're stunned to see him. And they, they, I mean, they just can't believe their eyes. Right. And he, again, this is a fable, right? It's not, um, I mean, it, it tells us, I think about trade routes and about, um, the treatment of slaves in the Islamic world. And the, because so many slaves, I mean, some slaves convert to Islam, the, uh, one of the basic legal norms in the Islamic world is that if a Muslim man has children, father's children by a slave woman, um, the children must are Muslim there. And, um, and he is hopefully going to uh, free her in the course of um, the children's lifetimes. But if he doesn't, if he dies um, and he hasn't yet freed her, she should be freed. And so that means that there's a constant demand for slaves in the Islamic world because uh, so many slaves stop, are emancipated. And uh, that's, I think, one of the explanations for this, this size of the slave trade um, at this time. Now, as you go on to explain, and, and as you've already referenced uh, to a degree, it's they're not just taking uh, slaves from Africa, though. They're also engaging in regular trade of minerals, especially gold. And I thought that chapter where you're talking, I, I love the title of it, the, the richest man of the world. And you describe this, this, this trade in gold, which was really fascinating, especially given how it seemed that you know it was it was so in demand, especially in Europe, and and and, and whereas in contrast in Africa they just had so much of it, it just didn't they they, they were it just had a, a very different place in terms of how their economy and society functioned. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's interesting too. Also, when um, Cortez gets to Mexico, you know, in, in 1519, and uh, the uh, the Aztec have so much gold. And he's just completely blown away. And it, it's not clear that the Aztec, I mean, they collect it and they have a huge room filled with gold. But it's not, because they have so much of it, they don't think it's as valuable as he does, as Cortez does. And in the, um, in the case of Africa, the, that person, the, the richest man in the world is the king of Mali named Mansa Musa. So, and Musa is the local pronunciation for, in Mali for Moses. So it just means King Moses. Um, he uh, he's a Muslim, and this, he's traveling in the 1330s, and he travels through Cairo, and he has um, so many carts of gold with him. I think he has 40 carts, but I don't remember exactly um, how many cartloads of uh, gold he has. But he brings so much gold with him to Cairo that the price of gold falls, right? The, the supply is... Uh, <laughs> is so enormous. And, uh, and I was going to say, one of the things that was very interesting to me to learn was that uh, it took people, it took such a long time for people to understand where the gold came from, that the gold traders kept the origins, the origins of the gold secret um, so that, that they could uh, maintain their monopoly uh, on the gold. So yeah, the gold is very important. Um, one of the things I think when, when we think about Africa, that it's not just slaves and gold, the Africans were importing things from Europe. Uh, and the, um, something we, that has been found in huge quantities is beads. And, uh, there are some bronzes 
that are found. There's a site in Nigeria called um, Igbo Ukwu, and uh, the bronzes are uh, very distinctive, like shapes that are not familiar, nothing like anything um, from Europe. And then they're covered with these beads have been embedded in the bronze. So the um, trade with Europe is uh, a lot of European, I guess we could say light manufactured goods, things like beads and cloth and trinkets are coming into Africa. So there is a real market in Africa for outside goods. You, uh, in your, you then follow that by talking a bit more about religion. And, and I thought this was an especially fascinating chapter because you're talking in particular about a region of the world that doesn't get as much attention as we might expect given its proximity, which is Central Asia. And I thought that was especially fascinating to how you paired that with this discussion about how there is this religious ordering that's taking place around this time where you're starting to see boundaries forming up between different faiths. And, 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 and you capture not just this formation, but the, the fluidity of what was going on during this period as well. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, my students are a little bit surprised when a, one of the things you can see that's happening in the year 1000 is there are a lot of conversions of rulers to what we now think of as world religions. So Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, but all of those get going around the year 1000. And the reason they get going is because these rulers convert to them. And so the Vladimir is, Prince Vladimir is a Rus leader and he converts to Christianity um, like 985 or 986. And then that, um, and he's an interesting example because he's in the center of uh, Afro-Eurasia. So he sends out delegations that actually have confirmation from a non-Russian source um, about uh, receiving a delegation from him. He sends delegations out to his neighbors to uh, find out how the neighbors are doing and what the religion is that they have, because he is trying to decide which religion will work the best for his people. And I'm talking about him because we have so much detail about him, but other leaders are making very similar decisions. Some of them are in Western Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Some of them are in Central Asia about what religion will work best for their kingdom. And the, we do see there's a um, something that uh, is involves China is well involves North China the region north of the Great Wall um, that uh, a, a, the Liao Dynasty so they're one they had five capitals they're a nomadic dynasty one and their southernmost uh, capital was modern day Beijing but they send an envoy to the ruler of, of Afghanistan a man named Mahmud who's a Muslim ruler. And uh, they basically propose an exchange of diplomats. And Mahmoud says, no, you're so far away. There's no danger that we'll ever go to war with one with each other. But if you convert to Islam, get back to me. <laughs> and, and so that's that to me is very interesting that people we can see these religious blocks forming. And we can also see leaders of the religious blocks thinking along those terms. And it was interesting because you, you go into uh, considerable detail about Vladimir for the reasons you just mentioned. And it was interesting how you uh, dissect that calculation. It's, the, it's not just a, a sense of it, it, we might think nowadays is which is the one true faith. They're thinking in terms of you know, practical terms, which one you know, demonstrates power, which one, you know, it, which one can we see by its success proves that it's the, that, that it's truer. And therefore, that's the one that 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 we should embrace. 
Right. Or, or which one is going to make me more powerful? Exactly. Exactly. Right. That, I mean, that, you know, that calculation. And, and here are my people. And, um, you know, they, they have in many parts of the world are there. Um, many populations are, are worshiping multiple deities and then um, having the king say, OK, I need to have some kind of religion that's going to unify everybody that I've conquered over this large territory. And, what, and which religion is going to serve my purposes? Mm-hmm. You do. And this gets to another thing about, about, about the book that I really appreciate, which was how you break down a lot of the traditional barriers in terms of how we think about the world. And I think that uh, the, the chapter you have about maritime trade in, in the Indian Pacific Oceans is, is, is one of the best examples of this. How you talk about how we think of the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and yet we're not talking about that these are are, are, are are geographically, you know, separate from one another. They're actually part of the same overall body of water. And how, if we think of it that way, the the trade that exists between these distinct areas stands out much more clearly. Right. I mean, it's 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 one of the things that um, I found just very interesting is that the the trade that is going all the way from uh, southeastern China around Southeast Asia, through the Straits of Malacca, uh, around India, and then um, to the Islamic world. And then there's another leg of that trade that goes down the East African coast. And the um, length of that uh, trade route if, if from uh, Guangzhou, so from the, the Chinese ports to um, the port near uh, Baghdad is called Basra, that's around 8,000 miles. And then if you connect it up with the trade down the East African coast, it's another 4,000 miles. So it's a huge, long trade uh, route. And we don't think about it, I think, because when the in the age of exploration, when Columbus and Da Gama and Magellan uh, circumnavigate the world, they're the first peoples to go all the way around the world. We don't think that much about, they're not really, they're not starting from zero. They're going from, there's some legs that they discover that are new, like going down the um, West African coast is new, but once they round the, um, the, uh, ca- the Cape of Good Hope, um, and then they're on a well-traveled route and Da Gama can hire a pilot to take him from Africa to India. That's no problem because that's a very established route. And so the, you know, the, the explorers around 1500, they are doing something new. Um, people have not traveled all, as far as I know, all the way around the world before, but um, but they they are the thing that they do that's new is linking up pre-existing routes. It's not creating a brand new route. It's interesting, though, when you talk about that, you're, you're talk about two things. When you talk about the, the, the physical limitations, the uh, currents, the winds, the monsoons and so forth. But I was especially fascinated by the mental limitations you describe, how uh, the, the notion of the torrid zone, which for a long time prevented uh, Europeans from thinking about exploring uh, uh, Western Africa or the, the, the Chinese concept of the great whirlpool, which, which uh, effectively prevented them from thinking about going East and, and reaching the Americas that way. Right. The ultimate drain, that's the whirlpool. Yeah, that's what it is. yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that the, uh, the idea that all the water in the world empties out into this drain. And so if you're a mariner, you don't want to get near that train. <laughs> that is not that is not where you want to be. And the torrid zone, that idea falls away. Right? Henry the Navigator is going; his his ships are going down 
um, the West African coast. And, you know, they, they should, according to um, the Greek um, geography, which the Arabs have kept alive and which the Europeans know about, they should hit this Torah zone where it's so hot that no human beings can live. And they get somewhere where it's hot, but it's not that hot, right? <laughs> and they can keep going. So the, the idea of the torrid zone falls away, but the ultimate drain idea, I think it may help to explain why the Chinese don't cross the Pacific. I think also from the Chinese point of view, all of the trade they're doing with Southeast Asia and India and East Africa is um, very profitable and very successful. So they don't have any incentive to really go in the opposite direction. So they, I mean, they, you know, as far as we know, they go to the Philippines, but they don't really go past the Philippines. The Philippines has Chinese um, settlements there, but um, they're they're not venturing out into the Pacific. And I think part of the reason could be this idea of the ultimate drain. And yet, they don't need to go out into the Pacific to achieve what you described in your last chapter as being the most globalized place on Earth. Exactly, what was it that made them so globalized, and 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 how was that represented to people that lived in China during that period? Well, the they were, I mean, as you know, they are today um, a manufacturing center. This is, of course, the year one thousand. There's no electricity. There's no steam power. So. Um, these are all man-made processes, but there's mass scale manufacturing. Uh, we know a lot about the ceramics because the ceramics survive archaeologically. There were huge kilns where they fired um, va- you know, tens of thousands of pots in a single firing, or maybe I shouldn't say that, maybe I should say thousands of pots um, in a single firing. And people, we know that people in China were working full time in those large scale kilns. Um, there's also massive textile manufacturing. Um, yes, silk, but in, in Southeast Asia, silk is not that useful. Cotton is more useful. Um, and then also metal goods, like people wanted uh, woks and, and um, so cooking pots and uh, metal cooking implements. And then of course, metal is used for armaments. Um, and so the Chinese are making all of this stuff and um, people who live outside China will pay lots of money to get those things. And um, one of, I think, the main sources I used for those those two chapters, one about Southeast Asia and one about China, is shipwrecks. And we've had in the last, mm, I'm just thinking, uh, well, we could just say the last 25 years, there have been some spectacular finds of shipwrecks with huge quantities of ceramics on them. And so we can see in an individual ship carrying, uh, in one case, 600,000 pots from China um, on its way to Southeast Asia or maybe India or maybe the Islamic world. So that's what China's exporting. What it's importing, what people want with with all the money that they're making from these goods, is they want the world to smell different. So they're... um, uh, bringing in incense and fragrant woods, woods like sandalwood, um, frankincense and myrrh are um, coming directly from the Arabian Peninsula. And then the Chinese um, and, and actually Southeast um, Asian merchants find some substitutes that are um, cheaper, um, and, but will pass. So, and people want the resin from these trees because it's so fragrant. And then if you um, burn the resin, it can change um, the air in a room. And so 
the uh, there's the Chinese are also at this time they have military needs too. They're importing a lot of horses, but that's mostly from Central Asia. Um, the the trade with Southeast Asia, an awful lot of it involves um, aromatics, and some of it is like a the trade today, the Chinese loved ivory then, and they still like ivory now. So they were importing um, lots of ivory. Uh, I mean, things that are uh, endangered um, animals from endangered animals now. So ivory, rhinoceros horn, uh, civet cat. These are all some of the things that are in the news today. They were also um, importing um, around the year 1000. It is fascinating to think about if you connect that all together, how while you don't have that evidence of, say, something coming from that you know, Viking contact with, uh, with say, Newfoundland or uh, the Canadian coast, uh, making it all the way to, uh, you know, uh, a, a Chinese market that by, you know, around that time, that's when you actually could potentially have something like that happen where you, you could see that type of migration taking place. Right. I mean, we have um, uh, individual, we have goods that we know travel on the legs individually. So uh, the, the, like a, the legs of a relay race. So um, we know that I've mentioned the lumber traveling from Newfoundland and like bison fur uh, traveling from, from Northeastern Canada uh, to Greenland. Right. Um, and we know Amber is really a great example because it travels all the way from the Baltic to the Baltic Sea, to North China, to this Liao dynasty. And we even have um, uh, an observer, the one who uh, tells us about the, uh, the, the Liao emperor making the overture to Mahmoud of Ghazna. Uh, he tells us about amber, the Chinese loving to import amber from Scandinavia. So that, um, yes, it, I, I would be, it, it's too bad I couldn't find an object that had traveled all the way around the world. But I'm I know that it was possible. The roots are open. It's just that there's no good that I, I mean, it, it, like we haven't found an example of turquoise from New Mexico in China, but we might, you know, <laughs> who's to say what we're going to find in the future or who's, who's to say what new archeological techniques will allow us to um, discover things that we don't now know. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, most of what I'm doing is, is promoting this book. Um, I am thinking about a project about that route that we were talking about, the route from Southeast Asia all the way to um, Basra and then down the East um, African coast because uh, it is such an important trade route and so many things happen on it. And it's, so, it's basically so little known, um, at least by Americans. Well, if you uh, do turn that into a book project, we'd love to have you back on the podcast to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much. I've, I've had a great time talking to you, Mark. It was a real pleasure. Well, thank you. I've had a great time talking with you as well. Valerie Hansen, thank you very uh, much for taking some time to speak with us. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. You too. <laughs> 